0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai.
1: There's joy in every journey. Times for drinking tea. In idle moments. When bored with poetry. Thoughts confused. Beating time to songs. When music stops. Living in seclusion. Enjoying scholarly pastimes. Conversing late at night. Studying on a sunny day. In the bridal chamber detaining favored guests, playing host to scholars or pretty girls, visiting friends returned from far away, in perfect weather, when skies are overcast, watching boats glide past on the canal, midst trees and bamboos, when flowers bud and birds chatter, on hot days by a lotus pond, burning incense in the courtyard, after tipsy guests have left, when the youngsters have gone out, on visits to secluded temples, when viewing springs and scenic rocks.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm
0: Joe McCormick.
1: And that, uh, opening up the episode there, that's one last tea poem. Uh, this one uh, is also collected in A History of Tea, The Life and Times of the World's Favorite Beverage by Laura C. Martin, which is one of my sources for these episodes. This is a poem by Su C. Shu, uh, which I, I like it, uh, you know, I guess it's kind of um simple format here. But yeah, basically saying you can drink tea anytime. Anytime is a great time to drink tea. But here are some specific examples. I like
0: this. Pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So this is our third, and I think this will be our our final for now episode on tea. I don't know, it's certainly a topic we could always come back to. Uh, It's a topic we could keep doing, but then if we were to do that, we would be a tea podcast, and we're not exclusively a tea podcast, but there are a lot of great-looking, exclusively tea-related podcasts out there. Uh, So certainly feel free to continue your tea journey uh, with other shows. And if there's a particular topic related to tea that seems like something we should cover, well, we can always come back and do that. Uh, but if you didn't listen to the first two episodes on tea, I highly recommend you go back and listen to those. We talked about, oh, the botany of tea. Um, we talked about a lot of the history of tea. We're going to conclude the basic uh, Chinese and Japanese history of tea in this episode with a few other uh, bits and pieces in there. We also talked about tea mythology in the first episode. Now, before we, we move on and, uh, and also get into some of these, uh, these interesting tangents, I wanted to clarify what we said in the last section about the phases of tea because I think this can get confusing. So, you have kind of like the primitive tea level where it would be tea leaves dropped into boiling water uh, creating a bitter brew. Then you have this phase one of tea. This is where you have leaves dried and pressed into bricks. And then when you go to make it, you cut some of that brick off, you put it in water, and it ends up being kind of coarse and acidic. But this was kind of like the first phase, the first uh, era of tea. Then comes phase two, where the leaves are steamed, dried, and ground into a fine powder, whipped into hot water. This is the, the matcha style of tea. It's fresher. It has a fresher, grassier flavor. And then eventually you get to phase three, where you have steamed, cut, dried, oxidized, and sorted and steeped tea that creates basically most of the modern flavors of tea uh, that we think of today. Now, there there are plenty of examples that kind of blur the line. You can still certainly get brick or cake, et cetera, teas that are oxidized. Matcha teas are still used as well. Uh, So it's um, don't look at this as just like a a strict um, evolution of form with past forms completely falling away. Uh, But I think it is a good structure to think of when we think about the evolution of tea. And as far as phase three goes, we will be getting into that later in this episode.
0: Now, Rob, before we do that, uh, you actually inspired me to go on a couple of tangents about teapots in this episode because while I am not much of a tea drinker, for many years, I did have an intimate relationship with a tea kettle that lived on my stovetop. And most of that relationship was one of strife and agony. <laughs> I really disliked this tea kettle for a number of reasons. And, and one of them uh, is as follows. Rob, I'm sure you've had this experience a million times uh, whether it's from a poorly designed or vintage teapot, or I guess from any vessel containing liquid. You, you, you fill it up, and you go to pour it out into a cup or a bowl. But instead of pouring in a steady arc where you aimed it, the liquid coming out of the spout clings to the underside of the teapot spout and then runs down the side of the pot and dribbles all
1: over the table or the floor or your pants. I have certainly encountered this before. Uh, Fortunately, our our current teapot uh, doesn't do this, uh, or at least doesn't do this so much. But I have certainly encountered this before.
0: The one that I'm thinking of had a very kind of wide, round, uh, almost pipe-like spout. And uh, yeah, it, it did this all the time. So this is a phenomenon that is well known in physics. It actually has a name. It's called the teapot effect. Uh, though it doesn't just happen in teapots, it occurs when pouring from all kinds of containers. Uh, I think it is probably one of the most common sources of spills and stains around the kitchen. Uh, when you know, when it, it you're trying to pour out of one container and it just doesn't pour the way you intended. It doesn't arc like you meant it to. Instead, it runs down the side. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think. I I have certainly encountered this even more with with other um, uh, pouring vessels Uh, and often it will be something, you know, bright and colorful or sticky that Mm -hmm. I really don't want to get everywhere.
0: I think uh, I was trying to think about situations where I encounter it the most. And before understanding all of the underlying physics, the things that occurred to me. Uh, Were that it happens when you're trying to pour a liquid slowly, especially out of a container without a a designated pouring lip. So like Mm -hmm. if you're trying to pour liquid, say out of a saucepan or out of a drinking glass, that's dribble city.
1: Yeah. And yeah, especially this will occur, at least in my experience, where you have say like you're going to pour orange juice out of an orange juice container and the orange juice container has just been opened. It's super filled up, you know, Mm -hmm. so you have this impulse to want to pour slowly in order to control uh, the juice, which is already almost overflowing. Uh, But if you do so, yeah, you're going to get that dribble more often than not. You've got to commit and really just slosh it in there. But why
0: does the dribbling happen? Well, it turns out the answer is not simple at all. And there have been fluid dynamics and rheology papers. Rheology is the study of how matter flows, uh, so the flow of fluids or plastic, uh, plastic solids. Um, uh, Rheology and fluid dynamics papers on this tricky subject going back at least as far as the 1950s. Uh, there was an investigation of the teapot effect that, in fact, even won an Ig Nobel Prize in 1999. Hmm. That You can see how that fits with their kind of like a quaint, quirky sense of humor, like oh, oh mm-hmm. teapots. But it looks like a fairly definitive paper on the uh, this question came out in 2021, and it was by uh, Bernhard uh, Scheichel, Robert I. Bowles, and uh, Giorgios Passias called Developed Liquid Film Passing a Smoothed and Wedge-Shaped Trailing Edge, Small-Scale Analysis, and the Teapot Effect at Large Reynolds Numbers. <laughs> this was published in the Journal of Fluid Mechanics, again, 2021. By the way, if you scroll through this paper and check out the diagrams and equations, it's almost hilarious. It, like, you would be shocked how complicated this looks. Uh, I'm not even going to pretend that I could make sense of it. Like, I was trying to look and hack through this paper. I'm like, oh, this is hopeless. So instead, I found a good article summarizing the results that includes an interview with one of the lead authors. Uh, the article was by uh, Jennifer Wallett for Ars Technica. And uh, this paper, so it was a collaboration between researchers at the Vienna University of Technology and University College London, and they say that their their paper here is a complete theoretical description of the teapot effect which has eluded these researchers for decades. Uh, finally, they've got all the forces modeled here correctly so they can fully predict what what happens uh, with a with a tea spout of various designs pouring in different ways and they say the teapot effect has to include. Uh, Inertial, viscous, and capillary forces. So it turns out one of the major factors influencing whether the liquid dribbles or not is, as you and I both intuited from our experience, flow rate. Uh, To people who have like less experience in the kitchen, I think this might sound counterintuitive because as you you, you were saying, Rob, a lot of times when you're – Trying to be careful and not spill something, your instinct is to pour slowly because pouring slowly seems like it's the careful option, right? Yeah. But as matches our experience at a higher flow rate, when liquid is coming out of the teapot or container faster, this actually makes the pouring action less likely to end up dribbling. That is uh, how you are more likely to get the arc you're intending. It's actually once you start trying to pour slowly, the dribbling becomes more likely. Uh, So, you know, you can imagine all kinds of scenarios here, like if you're trying to pour something uh, out slowly to carefully measure a volume of liquid into another container like a measuring cup or maybe you were trying to pour something in a slow stream to whisk and emulsify it you ever see people doing that they dribble all the time
1: mm-hmm. oh yeah and i'm thinking you know, especially like making cocktails and yeah. measuring out the various components this is why the sides of your bottles are sticky
0: yeah, so fast, steady pouring dribbles less. Uh, the design of the lip of the teapot or pouring container also matters. There were some French physicists who wrote a paper on this in 2010, and they suggested that you could fight the teapot effect by making the lip of the spout as thick. Thin and as sharp-ended as possible. So, like, round lips are more likely to dribble. And apparently it would also help to coat the end of the spout in water-repellent material so that the liquid or water-based liquid doesn't want to cling to the underside of the lip. And this seems to be because the dribbling is partially the result of what the researchers call a hydrocapillary effect. Basically, whenever you start to pour water-based liquid out of a container... Drops will form on the underside of the lip of the edge you're pouring from, like the spout of a teapot. So, you know, the water is coming out of the spout, but then on the underside of that spout, there's going to be some droplet formation. And the rate at which you pour determines how big those drops on the underside of the lip get. A high flow rate keeps them small, but a slow pouring allows the drops on the underside to become larger. And once those drops reach a certain critical size, once they get big enough, they actually start to grab hold of the water or tea or whatever that's coming out of the spout and redirect its flow down the side of the container instead of the arc that you're aiming for. Now, there was a thing that I was thinking about. This is another design feature that uh, I didn't see mentioned in uh, in this summary or in any of the papers I was looking at, but it's one that I've seen in some Kettle designs, uh, and it's a teapot spout that can have an upward arcing curve uh, right before the opening of the spout. For example, you see this on some gooseneck kettles. Rob, I've got an example for you to look at here if you scroll down. uh, If you try to picture it, it's kind of a curving swan neck shape. I don't know why I said swan neck, but they're literally called goosenecks. So yeah, it's the, the curving shape where uh, if you imagine it in pouring position and you're, you're trying to think how the uh, liquid would have to travel to run down the bottom of the spout, it would literally have to go sort of uphill first before it would be able to run down the spout. And I think this also helps it uh, not do that. One last thing that I thought was pretty interesting. So they had to model all these forces that uh, determine whether or not liquid dribbles when it's coming out. Again, those forces included inertial, uh, viscous, and capillary forces. But uh, there was actually very little role for gravity. Gravity does not play a major uh, role in causing the teapot effect, meaning that teapots will still dribble on the moon or in other low-gravity environments.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that reminds me. I was looking around for this episode. I briefly looked into drinking tea in orbit, and I didn't find anything that I was really compelled to include here. But I did see some footage of uh, of, uh, of an astronaut um, having their tea with chopsticks, um, mm. like eating the little uh, floating globs of tea. Out oh, of, I uh, see. Out of the atmosphere with uh, with their chopsticks. Yeah, just grabbing
0: like. So the, I guess with the surface tension, it's like a a little blob of tea floating and then you like put the chopsticks in it and it sticks to them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Okay, so that's the physical teapot tangent. Uh, What about the philosophical teapot tangent? Well, I thought it would be interesting to very briefly talk about Russell's teapot, uh, one of the most famous teapots in the world. It's not a physical artifact. It is a thought experiment used by Bertrand Russell to explain a certain form of skeptical reasoning, specifically in his case to support his uh, lack of belief in God, though I think it could be applied to. Other scenarios. Now, I want to front load a caveat and say uh, that some theistic philosophers think they have good arguments for why uh, Russell's teapot analogy does not or should not apply to beliefs about God. Uh, but even if you're inclined to agree with those critics, I think the teapot is useful to think about for a more general analogy for different types of beliefs that we hold and claims that we make. So uh, very, very brief biographical background. Bertrand Russell... Lived from 1872 to 1970. He was a famous British philosopher and public intellectual who was incredibly influential in a number of different fields. So he was preeminent in his academic fields of uh, logic and analytic philosophy. But he was also a a big cultural figure in in Britain and an advocate for political causes such as anti-imperialism, socialism and nuclear disarmament. But Russell was also infamous for being non-religious. In 1952, he he was asked to write an essay for a London magazine called Illustrated, which came to be called Is There a God? And uh, I think the essay was actually scrapped and not published in the originally intended venue. But but Russell expanded upon it later and, and released it and in the essay russell uses the analogy of a teapot floating in space to explain his doubts about the existence of god so i'm going to read from his essay here and then we can uh we can uh, analyze a little bit so russell says Many orthodox people speak as though it were the business of skeptics to disprove received dogmas rather than of dogmatists to prove them. This is, of course, a mistake. If I were to suggest that between Earth and Mars there is a China teapot revolving around the sun in an elliptical orbit, nobody would be able to disprove my assertion, provided I were careful to add that the teapot is too small to be revealed even by our most powerful telescopes." But if I were to go on to say that since my assertion cannot be disproved, it is intolerable presumption on the part of human reason to doubt it, I should rightly be thought to be talking nonsense. If, however, the existence of such a teapot were affirmed in ancient books, taught as sacred truth every Sunday, and instilled into the minds of children at school, hesitation to believe in its existence would become a mark of eccentricity and entitle the doubter to the attentions of the psychiatrist in an enlightened age or of the inquisitor at an earlier time. Mm -hmm. Now, to take a moment to be fair to Russell's critics, uh, I think they make some... I'm not sure what I think about this, some potentially good points about the belief in the teapot not actually being analogous to belief in an omnipotent creator God. Uh, Because they say, for example, the teapot is an object in the world that could only plausibly have come to orbit the sun if humans had put it there, which we would probably know about if it had happened. Meanwhile, God would not be an object in the world, but like the creator of the world or somehow standing outside the world. And therefore, according to these theistic philosophers, the existence of God is like a a proposition that is just not analogous to the the existence of any physical object or entity that you could search for in physical space. So uh, I think a good way of phrasing this objection is that they're saying, well, belief in God is not a claim about something that exists in the universe, but rather a claim about the way the universe is. I'm not going to try to adjudicate that particular dispute about whether Russell is right, that this is a good analogy for religious beliefs in God or whether the critics are right, that it is not. But either way, I think it is a useful thought experiment in a more general sense because it reminds us not to be taken in easily by unfalsifiable claims And uh, there's another uh, thought experiment right along these lines that we've talked about on the show before. You might if you listen for a while, you might remember it. The thought experiment by Carl Sagan, the invisible dragon in his garage. Mm -hmm. So Carl Sagan says, hey, I've got a dragon that lives in my garage. And if you doubt this, you you might say, well, okay, take me to your garage. I want to see it. And then Sagan says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. It's an invisible dragon, so you shouldn't expect to be able to see it. I mean, you can look, but you're not going to see it. It is there, though. And then you could say, well, uh, okay, then let's walk around in your garage, you know, with our hands outstretched and feel around for it until we finally come upon this dragon's invisible scaly back. And once again, Sagan can say, no, no, hold on. It is also an incorporeal dragon. It is made of spirit matter, not solid matter, so you shouldn't expect to be able to touch it. You know that that wouldn't disprove it that you can't feel it. And then you could go through more stages. I think he says that it's. A, you might suggest, well, what if we use like an infrared heat detector? Uh, and then he could say, no, 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 it it's it's a dragon that does not produce any heat, and so on and so on. You can go moving the goalposts of detection always backwards, so that there's no way to really check and see if the dragon is really there. I think the main point of both of these analogies, Russell's teapot and Carl Sagan's invisible dragon, is that people can always try to get you to believe things by shifting the obligation of evidence onto you for doubting the existence rather than assuming that obligation themselves for for claiming the existence. So so it's the, the attitude of, if I say X is true and you can't disprove it, you must accept it. And this is made doubly dangerous by, like, the rebuke of all potential investigatory tests. So in the case of Carl Sagan's Dragon, that's like, oh, no, 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 it's invisible and you can't touch it uh, and it wouldn't show up on infrared. But in the case of Russell's teapot analogy, it's that, well, the teapot is too small to see with any of our telescopes. but But I tell you, it is there. And the point of both of these analogies is essentially I say X. If you can't disprove it, you must accept it is not a legitimate way to reason because that type of argument could be for, uh, could be used to force you to believe in a teapot orbiting the sun or an invisible dragon in the garage. Reasonable claims are based on evidence, and most importantly, they are falsifiable. They, they entail certain physical predictions, like you should be able to see what I'm talking about if you look here, or you should be able to detect you know, the heat signature of the dragon if you look here. And if those predictions turn up false, the belief is probably false.
1: Yeah. And so to, to your point, like the, one of the big applications here, of course, is this, like conspiracy thinking today, mm-hmm. uh, where there are plenty of examples of this where it'll be some, you know, ultimately kind of ridiculous or outrageous or perhaps supernatural claim. And then it's it presented as if it is on us to disprove this. Yeah. Uh, when really that that's that's not the way it goes. And I think you see a more Or I tend to see a more rational approach to this with some of the impossible or currently impossible to prove hypotheses that we've discussed on the show before, like, say, the bicameral mind hypothesis or Mm -hmm. the stoned ape hypothesis. Like these are both, I think, examples of very thought provoking ideas that cannot be proved or disproved, at least not currently. And I also don't see the major um, advocates of these hypotheses demanding that uh, scientists disprove them. Like they seem to, they, they understand how Russell's teapot or the invisible dragon works here and mm-hmm. they know that it's on them to, to make the argument and yeah. provide the proof if there is such a thing.
0: Yes. I mean, I I think it's fair to play around in speculative territory, uh, but to always be hyper conscious to signal and, and remind yourself and remind others that that's what you're doing. We're playing around in speculative territory rather than getting too attached to like a fun and interesting idea that maybe doesn't have a lot of strong evidence for it and insisting that people should believe it.
1: Yeah. And with time, who knows, with time and research, uh, perhaps new evidence will come around to support a given uh, hypothesis or idea. Uh, but then the reverse may very well happen as well. Or it could be just something, again, that's completely in the realm of of, of, of no evidence, where there, there's never going to be any additional evidence to back this up one way or the other.
0: But I think one of the, the points that uh, Russell and um, Sagan are making here, and I totally agree with this, is that if you have a good theory, The theory should include within itself uh, ways of checking to know if the theory were wrong. So a a theory should entail predictions about the world, and uh, you know all all our good scientific theories do. And then you could go and check if those theories if those predictions turn out true. And if it's a good theory, those predictions will turn out true. And if it's there's something wrong with the theory, those predictions will not turn out true. And if it's a really bad theory, it, it in fact will not make predictions at all. It will just be sort of in this unfalsifiable space where it's like, well, there's no way to check if it's true.
1: I've also found if you were addressing doubters or your enemies within the first couple of paragraphs of laying out a given... Uh, <laughs> Uh, hypothesis, then that's a a real red flag.
0: Oh, my God. Yes, that's one of the best.
1: Mm -hmm. And I've encountered that at least a couple of times. Yeah.
0: One last point I want to emphasize, though, this is also from that Bertrand Russell quote. He goes on to argue that the fact that some beliefs are already held by many people gives those beliefs a superficial appearance of rationality even if there is no more evidence underlying them than there is for an obviously absurd belief that you can make up on the spot, such as a teapot randomly floating in space. Uh, And I I think this is a really good point that people should always keep in mind, because uh, even if you are, for the most part, a skeptical person, you will probably have biases along these lines. And I'll explain in a second. But According to Russell, it's like we only notice that the teapot claim is absurd because it is novel, because he just made it up on the spot. Mm-hmm. If people went around appearing to sincerely believe in the teapot, I think it truly would start to seem less absurd. And it might start to get, you know, equal time in the panel discussion on the news. <laughs> like, um, like one example, why does it seem, I will say even to me, I have no beliefs in the healing powers of crystals. But why does it just feel more plausible to me that crystals have literal healing properties than that driftwood has literal healing properties? (laughs) They're both beautiful natural objects. If you want to fill your house up with them or put them by your bedside and all that, I think that's wonderful. But I don't think they like literally emit vibrations that drive away uh, sickness or something. And I'd have to argue that the crystal proposition feels more plausible somehow even though I don't believe it and the reason is that this belief is familiar and the Driftwood belief is not. People have been saying this about crystals. Uh, people seem to believe it. So you just kind of – there's this feeling in your gut then was like, well, there must be something to it then. But the fact that people say something does not necessarily give it any credence, even though it does have this uh, power of giving it the superficial appearance of rationality. And you know what? I would say exactly the same thing is true of a lot of conspiracy beliefs like you were talking about a minute ago that like, – Like once somebody has said something and appears to sincerely believe it, suddenly you kind of have this feeling in your gut like, oh, well, maybe there's something to that then. Whereas if somebody had said the same thing in the the context of a thought experiment where they're obviously just making up an absurd belief on purpose on the spot, it wouldn't have that feeling.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean here. Um, The driftwood is a great example because I could imagine – it being supported and brought up enough. If someone were to champion the healing powers of driftwood, if there were stores that sold healing driftwood, mm-hmm. then like that idea would just be out there enough for you to sort of buy into it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Likewise, even the teapot, um, you know, outside of its its, its, trad- its traditional place here um, as a symbol of how we should think about uh, outrageous claims. You could imagine a scenario where someone was making an argument like, yeah, we, we think there's a teapot out there. Like there's a face on Mars, and there is a teapot um, out there floating in space, and uh, and we need to figure out why it's there. We have a few theories, you know. Um, so, like, if you, if it kind of comes down to the whole situation of uh, the the old uh, reality of if you, you say a lie enough times, then people will begin to believe it on some level. Like you've just created the internal reality of the, of the thing enough to where people can't quite get it out of their mind. Uh, I mean, a
0: favorite trick of the political demagogue. It's it's kind of scary how much if you just say something and now this is an idea that has to be discussed and taken seriously, even if there's literally no evidence for it at all.
1: Yeah. If there were a teapot, though, just for the sake of argument, do you think it would be uh, like a, an ornate historical teapot? Do you think it'd be like a simple like earthenware teapot or would it be I, like it, a space age teapot from another... Yeah.
0: Why are you even asked? Obviously, it would be a novelty Garfield head teapot. <laughs>
1: oh, well, that's good. Yes,
0: you know what does have healing
1: properties is Garfield merchandise. Oh, does it? Yes. Well, to some people, it may have slight um, <laughs> healing properties. Really, there's a whole comparison there you could possibly make to tea. You know, we we, we again are not going to get into the healing powers of tea too much, but outside of any actual properties involved. In the tea itself, outside of, like, what is, like, actually happening in your body when you drink tea. Mm -hmm. But by this point, like, tea has so many ritualistic... associations cultural associations and personal associations that there is a comfort to tea. kind of going back to that that poem there there are all these circumstances where it is the right time it is the appropriate time it is the comforting time to have a cup of tea
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and therefore yeah i mean to to at least some extent like any cup of tea is going to do you good if you are a tea person
0: well, this gets back to yeah, what we were talking about in the previous episode about the uh, the studies on the health effects of tea. Uh, I mean, it looks again there are a lot of persistent methodological problems with studies like this, but it looks on the whole like tea may very well have some positive health benefits. Uh, But it's just really hard to study stuff like this because it's not like a new drug that nobody was taking anyway. It's something that is deeply enmeshed in culture and in people's lives and in uh, all this. So it's a lot harder to isolate the like chemical mechanical properties of the molecules that enter your body when you drink tea and like do these really fight disease. Or when you're studying correlations between tea use and other health outcomes, is that a secondary effect of some other correlation just because it's it's so much a part of human life? It's it's so much harder to study.
1: This reminds me of a point I may come back to when we talk about uh, the the introduction of tea into Japan.
0: Oh, well, on that note, let's get back into uh, your notes on the the history of tea in China and Japan. Now, where did we leave off with uh, with the history and development of tea in the last episode?
1: I believe we pretty much reached the Yen dynasty. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was a period when the Mongols ruled China from the early 1200s through 1368. And as we, I believe, as we noted in the last episode, when you, when you have a period of outsider rule in China historically, you tend to see a decline in tea popularity. And I know we, we talked about this a little bit. You kind of asked, well, you know, why, why is that exactly? And I thought, well, this would be a good, good example here. I wanted to go a little deeper into it. So I looked at a few different sources on this particular scenario. Mm. Uh, because on one level, it's not to say that the Mongols didn't like tea. They had already been exposed to Chinese tea trade earlier and apparently took to it. They, they valued it as a digestive aid, among other things. Uh, some of the sources I was looking at pointed out that, There were particularities of, like, the traditional Mongol diet where it was nice to have a a big caffeine punch to sort of move things along, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, we have to remember, like there's, there's definitely cultural transference. I mean, this is one of the uh, sort of the famous aspects of of Mongol rule in China is that the, uh, the this the these new rulers take on a lot of uh, Chinese cultural things, and, uh, and so the, the the transference is going to go both ways. Uh, but but I've seen this mention of a uh, decline in tea popularity during this uh, period noted in multiple sources. Now, there is an added wrinkle that I've seen discussed uh, regarding the Marco Polo account. Uh, and I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of that and arguments about like how historically accurate we should consider the Marco Polo account. That account barely mentions tea, despite uh, uh, his visit supposedly taking place during this time. Um, but we know through other sources that there were plenty of tea houses still operating during this time period. And I think I've seen it argued as well that, okay, if we were to to take the the Marco Polo account at face value, he was ultimately more interested in things that were Mongolian. And he saw tea as this non-Mongol thing uh, and therefore didn't pay as much attention to it.
0: Mm. So you could say maybe he especially because he's interested in trade, he's interested in in dealing with the uh, the cultural artifacts of, say, the dominant culture at the time, the politically dominant culture.
1: Yeah, and I think it it would also line up with some other things I've read about how the Mongols they didn't like outlaw tea or anything, mm-hmm. but tea became just another beverage during this period. Mm-hmm. So they they valued it, but they didn't elevate it uh, like we see in uh, previous and subsequent dynasties in China. Mm-hmm. And I was reading about some of this in yeah, all the tea in China from nineteen ninety, a uh, book by Chow and Kramer. But now another source I was looking at is uh, by Valerie Sartor. This was published in um, the American Journal of Chinese Studies in 2007. seven. It is a paper titled, All the Tea in China, the Political Impact of Tea.
0: Well, again, they're both the, that the previous book you talked about and this paper are both called All the Tea in China.
1: It's just irresistible. You got to go with it. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, in, in, in this paper, uh, Sartor points out that um, the Mongol rule in China, again, the Yin dynasty, didn't put as much emphasis on Chinese tea culture or pay a lot of attention to traditional tea customs. However, they definitely liked it. They adopted the salting of their tea and mixing it with milk. Mm. And at the same time, traditional Chinese tea houses remain popular hangouts for scholars and poets. <laughs> Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. In 2005's Tea and Chinese Culture by Ling Wang, it's pointed out that the Mongol rule during the Yen Dynasty was not Not only ruled by a non-Han ethnic minority, it also filled many of its key positions with ethnic minorities as well. Wang points out that while the Mongols during this time really took to tea, they also pushed things toward a mass-produced product for the masses and pushed away from, uh, you know, the more, like, say, exotic animal-shaped tea cakes that had been popular in China prior uh, to their coming to power so uh you know I, again, I think it 's a more complicated seeming historical issue uh, than one might expect but but uh, but I wonder if we might think of it as being uh, kind of a cultural shift away from the glamour of tea as opposed to like a, you know an abandonment of tea or a, or a decline of tea, really. It was still valued culturally. Uh, among the Chinese as a beverage and a medicine, but it wasn't maintained as a socially elite thing with the kind of trickle-down effects of that social elitism uh, that you would see in, uh, during this time period.
0: I see. So in these uh, these sort of dormant periods uh, that we were talking about in that, that push-and-pull uh, uh, pattern uh, in the last episode, like in this example, it's not that tea really went away or that people stopped drinking tea, but just that it became less significant as a uh, as a political and social elite signifier.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I bet we can compare this. In, in a limited sense, to to various trends, you know, you'll have say a particular style of cocktail. In a, in a, this is would deal with a much shorter period of time, but like a particular cocktail comes out, it's exciting. But then it just becomes another cocktail, mm. and 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 the attention given to it, uh, you know, definitely goes down. the the uh, Your average experience of this cocktail is maybe a bit mediocre until such time as someone brings it back and starts pushing the boundaries again and mm. figuring out like what works about this cocktail. What can I improve upon? What new twists can I uh, do to it? And in what ways can I go back to the original version of this cocktail? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, but but either way, uh, during the, the manga rule, I think we can generalize and say that tea culture had stagnated a bit. Nobody seemed to have been advancing tea so much or pushing the boundaries of tea. But then uh, you had the establishment of the Ming dynasty in 1368. And it's in this dynasty we see uh, yet another revival of tea. And it's not to say that it's as simple as the Ming dynasty simply announcing, hey, tea's back on the menu, because again, it was never off the menu. Uh, and in fact, according to Wang in uh, Tea and Chinese Culture, the tea-loving scholarly class they were somewhat cracked down on uh, during this uh, initially during this period, as were various other perceived threats, um, as the Ming solidified their rule. Though interestingly enough, one of the founding Hongwu Emperor's sons became a key scholar and proponent of tea during this time. Uh, this was an individual by the name of Zhu Quan, and uh, he wrote a manual on tea. And much of the Ming tea ceremony culture to follow would be based on the ideas presented in this manual, Um, tea as uh, this ritualized cleanser of the soul. Mm. So on on one hand, yes, you have imperial folks pushing tea again, accepting tea. You can get kind of like that that um, trickle-down attraction to the beverage again. But it's also during this period that we enter phase three of tea, in which Uh, uh, tea is picked, withered, dried, rolled, and oxidized. The result is dried, loose-leaf tea that can then be steeped for a set number of minutes to create a smooth and rich beverage. Um, It was easier to process this way, uh, as Laura C. Martin points out in The History of Tea, and it better enables the incorporation of dried fruits and spices as well as flowers. All of these were ingredients that uh, the Chinese tea enthusiasts during this day and tea masters definitely explored. Mm Mm-hmm. And you see this a lot in tea today as well. Also during this time, the Hongwu emperor himself proclaims that only this new method of loose-leaf tea is going to be acceptable as tribute. Uh, so tea tributes made to, to the emperor and his household. They have to be this new phase three tea. The scholarly class apparently held out a little bit longer, sticking to their older traditions, traditions, again, that they had, they had stuck to through foreign rule. But even they eventually realize, hey, oolong tea is really good when they start drinking oolong tea instead.
0: Okay, so they've got the the uh, the larger process that includes oxidation like we talked about last time. But am am I correct that oolong, that's a medium level oxidation tea, right? It's not as oxidized as like black tea, but it's uh, more than green tea.
1: Yeah, so I didn't read a whole lot on oolong or oolong tea, but but perhaps there was kind of like a meeting of halfway there, where they're yeah. like, oh, but this one's just a little bit oxidized, you know? Yeah. Now, new types of tea also means okay, we have uh, we we have new methods of brewing it, so we need new tea paraphernalia, and so it's during this time to come back to the teapot. That uh, that historians think that the true teapot was possibly born. Now, prior to this, one would use open pans and wide-mouth bowls to brew your tea in. But they discovered now that okay, if you have a small covered container, this is going to bring out more flavor. Hmm. But it's uh, at the same time, it's thought that the invention of the teapot was largely more of a repurposing of pre-existing wine ewers and and then adapting the design for tea. Uh, so. For instance, the handle being placed on the side of the teapot as opposed to on top of the teapot for easier access, though, of course, we still have a lot of teapots today where you have the handle on top that kind of folds to the side. Also, smaller pots, because while it might make sense to have a larger pot that you have filled with wine to distribute at a party or something... If you're making tea in it, you don't want to make so much tea in the pot that everything gets oversteeped uh, because you oversteep your tea. It's going to take on a bitter and undesirable flavor. Um, I imagine uh, many of you out there have encountered this before. Perhaps you get a pot of tea at a restaurant and there are not enough of you drinking it or you're drinking it at such a slow pace that by the end, it's pretty strong and maybe a bit bitter.
0: mm. Sorry, this got me thinking about with the invention of the teapot, if there are any older uh, like of these tea poems, if any of them mention the dreaded dribbling, like is the teapot effect referenced that far back? I wonder when the first person to notice it in writing was.
1: Oh, this is a great question. We may have to come back to this because I bet there's an answer. Because these these texts that were coming out on tea culture were so exhaustive about all the do's and don'ts, mm-hmm. there has to be something in there about the I'm surely forbidden don't of dribbling your tea during a um, a, a high class tea service. Like if it doesn't, it, like surely it exists in, in 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 Chinese and or Japanese literature.
0: Yeah, uh, the, the instruction must be to pour with confidence.
1: <laughs> yes. Now, there were other advancements here too. For example, light-colored porcelain ceramics became all the rage as they allowed you to show off the natural color of a particular uh, tea better. Blue underglazes were also quite popular. And there was also a special earthenware teapot known as a a yizing that was quite popular as well. This was, um, I think it, it basically means like purple earthenware, but it wasn't necessarily purple, but it was an earthenware teapot that was essentially seasoned by the tea. And they could also be quite beautiful, but there are some mentions in the, the old uh, uh, writings about tea that like, oh, we well, have a nice tea here, but you're serving it out of the wrong pot. You need a properly seasoned pot, otherwise it's just not going to taste right. Now we mentioned oolong tea already, but obviously this is the, the time during which black tea is discovered. Uh, you know that we could realize that we can have, a, we have this, this this highly oxidized black or red tea, as it's generally referred to uh, in China. And as Mary Lou and Robert J Heist discuss in the the story of tea, a cultural history and drinking guide, that came out in two thousand seven. Uh, the discovery of black tea oxidation uh, as a process was originally thought only suitable for barbarians and foreigners. Well, it makes
0: me wonder, as I'm sure you know, many uh, uh, food inventions uh, have an origin like this, was this discovered by accident? Was it like, ooh, the tea, the tea leaves got bruised up and smashed and then left around for a while and they turned dark and, and all that? Is it ruined? Oh, no, turns out it actually tastes great.
1: You know, I think I ran across a story or two to that effect, but then I couldn't refine the story when I was uh, finalizing my notes here. But, yeah, I feel like there was at least one story about, like, some discarded tea shipments that an army came across or something to that effect. Um, but uh, uh, but the, the other interesting thing about this is that, like, the resulting tea would simply keep longer and mm-hmm. could therefore be shipped further, both by land and by sea. And so the brick tea that started reaching Mongolia and Tibet, uh, that would be black brick tea. Meanwhile, green tea bricks, uh, those more easily suffered from overheating, from freezing, and, they, and it often developed mold in damp environments. So yeah, we get into this situation where the farther out you're sending your tea, the more it makes sense for it to be black tea. And, per, and perhaps early on, you're just like, well, yeah, get, send that black stuff out of here. That's, that's going to Mongolia. That's going to Tibet. But then of course, over time, it catches on, people start experimenting with it, and you get so many splendid black teas as well. But at the same time, black tea, of course, becomes the tea to catch on in the Western world and catch on by storm. Uh, there, there's a good, great deal of um, of Martin's History of Tea that, of course, just deals with this, like how tea reaches uh, Europe and how it, I mean, because it's so crazy to think about this as well, like modern Britain, and not even modern Britain, but historically, Britain and tea, so inseparable, um, like it is held up as this thoroughly British thing, but of course, it is entirely an import. Uh, one interesting thing, this is something that we discussed on an older episode of the show, but like thinking again about black tea being considered this thoroughly British thing. And yet at the same time, there seems to have been at least a mild panic in Britain in the 19th century about green tea, uh, making people hallucinate, unlike proper black tea, of course. <laughs>
0: It's almost like people don't realize they come from the same plant. And yeah, like,
1: like you're talking about the same botanical origin here. They're both yeah. tea, but yeah, black tea is uh, is British, uh, but uh-huh. green tea is uh, something to mistrust. And dangerous, again, there's a dangerous, dangerous yeah.
0: foreign substance that may have the devil inside it.
1: Yeah, and there's a again, there's an older episode of the show about this, but the scenario seemed to have basically involved three factors mistrust of of a tea seen as foreign or unusual and i think this was also backed up by a popular ghost story that was written in the time during this time period about the the dangers of green tea also possible contaminants of the tea and also there were some uh, sort of uh, bad actors in the the tea market here who thought, well, we need to make this color more exciting for Western uh, customers. And so they were throwing in some uh, perhaps um, uh, less than healthy substances to try to enhance the coloration of the green tea.
0: Mm. Oh, this may be a completely spurious connection, but it also makes me think of the uh, English association between the color green and like the uh, the jealousy of the fairies.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I I, I don't recall there, if, if anybody called out that connection, but I could easily see that there, there being this sort of color theory uh, and color aversion already present in a given culture. And then you, know, you have these other uh, it, that could potentially enhance these other um, uh, reasons that were seen at the time to be suspicious of green tea.
0: Yeah, like a, a green dress invites curses. What would a green beverage do?
1: Yeah. But the other thing worth keeping in mind, too, is that There is an actual possible link between caffeine and hallucination, Uh, and this link is not all that shocking when you consider the relationships between anxiety, stimulants, and the mind's just natural potential for hallucinations for various reasons.
0: Yeah, but would there be more caffeine in the green tea than the black tea? I thought it was usually the other way around. Um,
1: Yes, but then also a lot of that comes down to how long you're steeping something and, uh, you know, how, how often you're consuming it, I guess. Um, like if you're having enough green tea during the course of a day, I mean, the other part of it is that, that an individual's susceptibility to caffeine is going to vary from person to person. Um, but I, I guess one way to look at it is, yeah, if caffeine potentially enhances stress, then this could cause the body to release more cortisol And uh, another explanation that I remember from that episode was that people who use caffeine a lot, say three or more cups of, of coffee per day, are simply more prone to mental health associations that cause hallucinations. So, mm. you know, there are various various ways to tease it apart. There's nothing special about green tea uh, itself, unless it is, of course, has some sort of horrible substance added to it, potentially, uh, to make it more um, hallucinogenic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's just kind of interesting in terms of the Britishness or foreign nature of tea as perceived uh, in England in the 19th century. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, one final area. Again, we're not going to follow T all around the world and cover all the various variations and customs on this show. Uh, But I think it is important to at least touch on Japanese tea culture and history a bit as well, because uh, like knowing when and how tea reaches Japan is also important because the because Japanese culture has contributed so much to our our global understanding and appreciation of tea. In fact, a number of the teas that I uh, drink are Chinese teas, but I did make sure that I was drinking a Japanese tea when I was working on this section of the notes.
0: Oh, which one is that?
1: is a delightful karagani tea which is a green tea this one's made i think mostly from stems mm-hmm. and like a, a lot of green teas you have to be you can't just go willy-nilly in there and start steeping it at any temperature and for any amount of time it's not one of the kind of sloppy i like a good sloppy tea that i can accidentally forget about and come back to and it's it's no worse for wear this is one you have to be precise with uh, but if you if you just give it the appropriate amount of time at the appropriate temperature it's thoroughly delightful very smooth green tea Hmm. So tea culture, uh, as I was reading, and most of my main source on this was Martin. Uh, but uh, tea culture was originally introduced into Japan via Buddhism during the reign of Prince. Uh, Uh, Shotoku, who lived 574 through 622. This is a semi-legendary figure, though there's nothing too legendary about the basic premise here. Uh, So this is not a story that involves uh, the um, machinations of gods or supernatural deities. Basically, you had scholars traveling to China during this time, studying Buddhism, and in the process, also learning to drink and cultivate tea. Now this is definitely the phase one era of tea at this point. So there's the there's that that level of tea technology that they have. This is the level of tea technology that they're bringing back with them.
0: Phase one would have been the uh, the brick form.
1: Yeah, the the brick form that did not have as enhanced a uh, flavor profile as most of the teas we think of today. Okay, and it was a luxury item at first, mostly imported. But it was during the reign of Emperor Shoumu who lived uh, 701 through 756. Uh, it was, he helped popularize it more by serving it to monks. Particularly, there's a story about him serving it to monks during this day long reading of Buddhist scriptures. And they're like, what is this? And he's like, drink it. It's going to enhance everything you're doing today. Trust me. And supposedly, um, they end up embracing it. Up uh, until the ninth century, when Sino-Japanese relations strained somewhat, there was a lot of cultural transference there, with tea customs and practices entering into Japan from China, much of it tied to Buddhist practices and the tastes of the imperial court at that time. Uh, in the ninth century, however, diplomatic ties between the countries dried up, and tea culture in Japan didn't really progress for a good three centuries. Its popularity decreased, and its use was then limited mostly to monasteries, which is interesting because all this kind of mirrors what we saw during Mongol rule in China. Mm-hmm. But then during the 12th century, relations between Japan and China improved, and it's during this period that the monk Asai introduced both the Rinzai Zen Buddhism uh, practice as well as whipped tea to Japan. So this is phase two. Once more uh, with uh, with Asai here, he's advocating tea as a key tool for Zen Buddhist practitioners as well as a, quote, divine remedy and supreme gift of heaven. Mm. Uh, Martin writes that uh, Asai proclaimed tea as the cure for loss of appetite. Illness is caused by poor drinking water. Paralysis boils and what we would come to know of as a, as a thymine deficiency. He saw tea drinking as something that benefited each organ in a different way, as well as the spiritual aspects of a person as well. Just so it's everywhere it could go to leak into all your organs and into your spiritual structures. And it's just going to cleanse everything out and make everything better.
0: Tea is great, but I, I love these different moments in history where like somebody discovers tea and then they're like, it does everything. And they, <laughs> you know,
1: they, they really get on the tea train. Yeah, I do like that. Again, it comes back to something we talked about in the in the last episode about tea being healthier than just normal drinking water that hasn't been brought up to the boiling point. Yeah. So initially, tea was really popular in monasteries and among the ruling class, but then it spread to pretty much everyone. It also became highly ritualized during this time. The time of the samurai, for example, it became part of the bushido code. So if you were a member of the elite warrior class in Japan, you were yeah, you're expected to be able to to kill people with your sword, but you were expected to apply yourself to, say, poetry and uh, tea customs when you were not fighting or training to fight. Hmm. By the mid-14th century, tea houses were a popular secular hangout as well, and it seems to have taken on a, a not only a secular air, but kind of a boisterous quality as well. There are apparently a number of tales of tea-drinking exploits. Uh, some of these exploits were tied to just drinking a whole lot of tea. There are accounts of, like, 50 cups, 100 cups, though I'm, I don't think this is necessarily for an individual, but maybe more for like a group or a table Oh, uh, okay. Because, I mean,
0: warning, like, you, you can't actually get too much caffeine. Be careful there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, do not try and drink 50 or 100 cups. But I think this would be like a party, like a large group, and they're just drinking a lot of tea, and they're keeping mm. track of how many they were going through. It could be wrong, but I think that's the, t- the case. There were also more refined um, tea-drinking exploits tied to contests that would take place to see if you could identify a tea by the taste or, say, taste a tea and determine what region it's from, that sort of thing. And the tea service during this time was also formalized as a part of politics. So really, it's like at every level of the socioeconomic structure, tea ends up finding a place. Uh, Tea culture would come to impact various levels of design as well, from the physical instruments of tea brewing, of course, in Japan, but also... um, uh, this would end up uh, being tied into the the architecture of tea huts that were specially designed uh, to like blend into the natural environment and be part of this sort of like nature based understanding of tea and tea drinking.
0: Speaking of uh, pouring with confidence to avoid the teapot effect that I, I mentioned earlier, I've watched some video of Japanese tea masters from today at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, I, I really notice a a, uh, a pouring with confidence kind of uh, ethic to them. Like it, it's interesting to watch their actions because uh, in the ones I've seen, they are, of course, very precise with their movements. So it's not it's the opposite of sloppy but it is also very like forceful and deliberate confident pouring it is not uh not delicate little uh, anything that would result in dribbling
1: <laughs> yeah like i say i know that some of these tea masters in their works have to have to tackle uh, the avoidance of dribbling and how you avoid dribbling in these uh, various tea ceremonies you know, I don't know about you, Joe, but another this is something that comes up for me, and I know was surely avoided by by experts in the field. But in the re-steeping of tea bags, one error that uh, that we have to keep looking out for in my house is you you have an already wet tea bag, and uh, you're going to do your second or third steep. You put it in there. You have some new hot water added. If the tea bag is kind of partially hanging over the edge of the of the the, te- the tea cup or the the mug then you'll have this kind of wicking effect where the, the water uh comes up through the tea bag and then gets all over the countertop. Have you ever had this mm, occur?
0: Yeah, I, I didn't know what you're talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh that, another great way to make a big mess with tea.
0: A different kind of capillary action, I would guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 Capillary action sounds sounds like a better uh, explanation. But uh but yeah, it, it do make a mess.
0: Well I've enjoyed this tea journey, Rob.
1: Yeah, like I say, uh, this was not an attempt to provide an exhaustive and all-inclusive understanding of tea, but hopefully sort of drive home like the basic evolution of tea and, and where a lot of the the most important movements in tea were taking place. Uh, because again we have such a, a rich tea uh, global culture out there to appreciate now we didn't even get into like all the, the various like, salted and buttered tea traditions and again we're already at this point i don't think we've gotten to share any of these in listener mail yet but we're already hearing from some folks about uh, some of their favorite ways to prepare tea things that are either personally or culturally important to them uh, so we would love to hear from everyone out there if there's a a yeah, particular tea you love, uh, let us know. Uh, for my own part, and during this recording especially, I have um, a bit of a, a sore throat and a cold, a cough going on. And I depended heavily on a puer tea uh, called um, Evil Snake King. And normally I just take it straight. But for this, I added a lot of honey to it. So uh, normally I don't put anything into the teas that I drink. But man, if my throat is a little bit sore, I can add some uh, some honey, maybe even some lemon to that. And uh, it'll really get me through. Well, may the evil snake king breathe all his curses into
0: uh, whatever whatever microbe it is infecting your throat <laughs> or virus. Uh, blast them on out
1: of there. Yeah. Plus, I just bought this piece of driftwood. It just just (laughs) arrived. It's supposed to have uh, healing properties. If you Uh, swallow it. Yeah, yeah. I have to swallow it and I strap it to my neck. uh, I'm going to be good. Great. Alright, so yeah, uh, right in. We'd love to hear from everyone out there about uh, tea and uh, tea culture in your life. Uh, if you have, uh, perhaps you have some answers to our questions about the tea dribbling uh, uh, advice from the, the tea masters of old. Uh, in, the, in the meantime, check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Our core episodes come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do those Lister Mail episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a Strange film. Huge thanks
0: to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,
1: Zumo Play.